that report was helpful for me in that it allowed me to have the conversation with her of, okay, your race is in, you know, a little over a month. And are you okay with potentially not necessarily being asymptomatic, but having faith in the fact that between me and your run coach, we've ramped you up enough. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Clinical Athlete is a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who walk the walk and specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. Our first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to nurture the education and growth of those professionals through a community of like-minded individuals who strive to learn and get better. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. To learn more and to get involved in all the things we do, join the free Kalu Community Facebook group for great discussions, resources, events, and networking opportunities. Hit that link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, mediocre athlete, and co-founder of Clinical Athlete and Calu. Pumped for this show, I'm joined by Steph Allen, and we've got another Clinical Files case coming at you. Steph is co-founder of the Level Up Initiative, part of the Calu executive team, brain trust, and mentor for the Calu Plus community, and she's the co-founder of ACL Resolve, where she helps ACLers turn their story of struggle into one of success. On this show, Steph shares a case that she had in the past working with an avid trail runner with hip pain. It was a great discussion of her overall thought process and plan of care, along with some pearls of wisdom for managing setbacks and expectations for any athlete. We hope you enjoy. So you've got a case for us. People have been enjoying these clinical files. It seems like we've been getting some good feedback. So we're definitely going to keep doing them. And, and we've been getting a lot out of them. Um, so Steph, I'm going to give you the floor and we'll get to chatting. Yeah, let's do it. So I was telling you a little bit before we recorded that I'm excited for this one for different reasons than the last one. This one, I feel like I actually will kind of ask a bit of you as far as what you think about my findings slash what I did. And also um, for those of you listening, think of those questions also being kind of extended to you as well, um, because I think this particular case is a good example or like microcosm of some of the uncertainty but also commonalities that occur within things like a, a tendinopathy. So um, I know I gave a little bit away, but I will, I will dive on into a little bit of the subjective here. So this particular individual is a late 20s, early 30s, I forget which, um, female trail runner. The kind of large umbrella background is she was not primarily a trail runner until like the very beginning of COVID. Prior to that, it wasn't her main means of exercise. So she, per her words, was kind of a occasionally class taker and would bike sometimes and or occasionally run. So essentially, she went from not really running regularly at all to running a ton during COVID and actually taking up really long distance races. So there are some that are relays where she wasn't running the whole time, but she was running up to like, you know, 30, 40, 50 K races or something crazy like that. Um, sometimes they're over a course of a couple days. Again, the, that type of running, I haven't worked a ton with here in the Boston area. Um, we have a lot of 10 K half marathon marathoners, um, a lot of flat road runners, not as many, trail runners that, that I've seen in the office too much, but anyway, um, so she definitely agreed in the increase in type and amount of activity. Um, and her primary complaint was some right lateral hip pain, occasionally going into what she described as her hamstring, but also pointed like right to ischium or that sitting bone. So that, 
and some other parts of the subjective. Um, I had a couple of things in mind. She also reported things that stood out to me were that it didn't originally bother her too much while running, but it would, quote unquote, tighten up and bother her afterwards. She also made a point to tell me that she hadn't lifted much in a while and that she really wanted to get back into, again, quote unquote, lifting heavy. So those were all things that she already seemed to be fairly aware of that could be contributing. So that was kind of cool on my part. They made my job a little bit easier because oftentimes people are are pretty self-aware. So before going into objective, what I had in, oh, and we did also, pardon me, we did also go over if there was anything that changed shoe wear wise, because I know with trail running, they, you know, similarly to marathoners, they are instructed to and often do change shoes fairly frequently, um, especially just because of the terrain that they're on. So then going into objective, I definitely wanted to make sure I was ruling out anything bone stress or bone stress injury wise, just demographics, but also just that increase in amount of activity was pretty significant. So regardless of whether or not she was predisposed from any energy deficiency or anything like that, you know, all of that aside, it's just something with, with runners, it's probably the the Chris Johnson um, ingrained in me, but that's always going to be something that I'm going to consider and and rule out. So that was on my mind. Um, wanted to obviously anything lower extremity rule out with a lumbar screen. Both of those things checked out, both with uh, hopping and with a lumbar screen. So those were that was good to take those off the off the table at least. She also didn't have any neural tension um, as far as like sitting slump or anything and. Then um, I did actually, this is a case, and I'm curious your thoughts too, Quinn, where I did and often do palpate, not always depending, but she, through the subjective, just kept putting her hand on the area, putting her hand on the area. So I tend to kind of like take that as a nonverbal cue that they want me to check out that area. (laughs) So, and again, sometimes it is with something muscular in nature, if that's what it truly is, then it might, they might find that if I palpate both sides, it's actually the same amount tender. And sometimes that's helpful for them because they realize, okay, like maybe one side isn't necessarily worse than the other. They don't have a bad side. Maybe they're both getting work just as, just as hard with trail running. And she particularly did have significantly more tenderness to palpation on that right side. So now we're at the point of like lumbar screens ruled out, bone stress injury fairly confidently ruled out, definitely some tenderness with palpation. Before I share what I did, the rest of objective, I'm just curious your thoughts, Quinn. How often do you feel like you use palpation? Probably every session to some degree in the way that you described uh, typically nondescript, nonspecific. Here I am paying attention to the area that you're that you're concerned about. I'm not ignoring it. I'm looking, you know, that that type of feel. Because I have made the mistake of going through it like somehow assuming that they understand that I know what or or that I feel what they have going on is not specific to a, a general area and palpation uh, is not going to help our cause. And somehow I assume that they're going to read my mind and know that. And then I think I have an awesome plan at the end of the session. They're like, are you going to let you, you know, check it out? <laughs> so that has happened to me. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't tell you, you know, how many sessions I don't physically touch the area, but, but many times I do for that, for that kind of reason, that kind of nondescript, for, you know, specifically, uh, hamstring strains, you know, just kind of gauging how quote unquote hot the area is. It's a, it's a very rough outcome. Oh, it was very tender, made you jump off the table on day one. And, you know, now it doesn't, and it feels the same on the other side. So it's just another kind of loose piece of information for us. 
uh, to, to kind of gauge progress and, and um, sensitivity and that type of thing. So, but I was curious where specifically was she tender? Literally like right in the midst of glutamine, like in the, just underneath like iliac crest. Okay. So, okay. Cause, cause I say some other um, like lateral hip instances where people will just kind of tell me, yeah, it's like outside of my hip and they put their whole hand and they just kind of rub, you know, the outside and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Glutamide. But then I'll palpate and the, the actual kind of focal area is like well below the trochanter and I can't provoke it by like what I would think would be loading the glute meat. And then that does semi inform me because then I may not prescribe, you know, exercises that I think are specifically going after that area. It may be more general, but um, that's why I was curious to ask specifically where, but it's, did you, um, she mentioned that she had some of the pain sometimes would go to like the high hamstring insertion did you palpate there? Was there any tenderness there? I did. We didn't, there wasn't anything mid belly or proximal or distal insertion really. She did have a little bit with prone resisted, like manually resisted hamstrings. I wanted to just uh, okay. take a look at that as well. And, but that was like, it was a little bit more on the right side, but both were uncomfortable for her. So I'm yeah. wondering if, you know, and I know we hear this like, bajillion and one times but you know she quote unquote always had really tight hamstrings so Mm. um that was one thing i was going to ask about i was going to wait until you got into the objective but we're on it now mm -hmm. um hamstring provocation other than what you just described was there anything there uh trying to differentiate between hamstring and lateral hip no she uh, because i asked about sitting as well because that tends to be, if it is a true high hamstring tendinopathy, sometimes it'll either touch it when we try a, when we try a sitting slump or like if it doesn't like the tension and or the compression of sitting. And neither of those seemed to be like regular. You know, when I ask somebody a question and they have to really think about it, I usually take that as it's probably not often enough that it bothers them that it's a significant symptom because when it really is like someone will say, Oh yeah, sitting sucks. Like I can't sit for very long. So it was starting to lean me away from a hamstring tendinopathy. At that point, the next thing that I wanted to do was actually just check out the hip joint itself because with either like ischial pain or groin pain, she didn't have groin pain, but those things are also could be referral areas from the hip joint. So that's kind of where I went to next. If you want me to dive in there. Yes. And just really quick, the hopping to rule out bone, mm-hmm. um, just something like single leg hop in place. So sorry. Yes. I did double leg hopping, like pogos, single leg each side. I did a side plank and I also did single leg bridges just to see loading that area. What if those things provoked, cause I could see hopping potentially kind of provoking the, her familiar symptoms, Mm -hmm. what would differentiate her familiar symptoms from a bone stress? Well, I wouldn't be a hundred percent confident without the imaging. However, I would think that because she mentioned the two different spots, both the ischial area and that like high lateral hip, that if with the jumping, it provoked more of the ischial stuff, like a deeper pain, potentially that could be more bone stress related. I also have recency bias with that from myself. And I know that there was a big difference. It didn't feel muscular to me when I jumped. And most of the Mm. time, not all the time, obviously, so you can't depend on that. Like most of the time people can tell you whether that feels like, you know, like my lateral hip pain slash muscle tightness versus like whether it's sharp or kind of like deep or that's like my hamstring or like glute, like butt pain. Um, Right. So that potentially would have steered me more that way with the jumping. Would you potentially consider um, some type of like tuning fork assessment? For like yes, I wish we had one. And that is a conversation I've had with uh, Chris Johnson because that is one one thing that he definitely um, suggests as well. And he has voiced that it's, it's really helped with, um, well, actually he's tuning fork and or like a vibration platform. Mm. He says he doesn't know the, the established 
like reliability validity with the vibration platform outside of the, or if it's the same, same or similar to the tuning fork, but that he was telling you when I was talking to him about my own, that the last several people that he had tried that, that had access to one, it immediately provoked familiar, uh, familiar symptoms. So, but I do not have access to either of those. <laughs> cool. Thanks for, thanks for going into that. Um, hip. Yes. So now I dove into the joint just to make sure sometimes hip labrum can have weird, um, referral, like butt groin stuff. Um, Steph Munt is also someone I've, I've talked to with that. She has a podcast right now with Ellie explaining her symptoms that were kind of similar. Anyway, so I wanted to, that was also on my mind to check out the actual butt pain too. And things like the scour, full hip flexion, um, from a, from a joint perspective, the, the hip joint was clear. Um, she did feel a little bit when I went into like passive abduction, like end range on that right side. I'm wondering how much of that was just like, again, a little bit of almost like compression or the muscle itself being in a full shortened position. Um, but that one was more felt on lateral hip, not the, not the ischium. So, and then I also just kind of as a whole revisited some screening questions as far as like no major changes in weight, no major changes in like, you know, every once in a while you'll, you'll talk to someone and they're like, oh yeah, I went vegan (laughs) or like I did something crazy diet wise. And sometimes that can be implicated if you're really leaning towards the bone stress injury. So I know that was a little bit out of sequence, but that is real life that I've remembered at that point in the eval, like, oh, I just want to make sure that I'm covering bases. So for all of you out there, sometimes that happens. You're allowed to ask maybe more subjective questions as you go. So yeah, at this point, I, I was definitely leaning more towards, again, just from the subjective parts of, you know, if I were to, to recap in my head, it was significant increase in amount and type of activity after not really being super well. Um, she didn't really build a base in trail running. She just kind of like started it and started doing races and really is now, you know, like addicted to it. The, the background picture of this woman is like, she's like, when can I, she's like, I have a race at the end of July. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Like we, <laughs> we'll get there. It's not out. It's not off the table. So there's that kind of aspect to all of this too in the background, but huge spike in type and amount of activity that she wasn't used to. Um, no real change in shoes since starting lumbar screen clear, pretty unlikely for anything neural tension or bone stress wise hip joint was clear. And then the things like tends to be okay while moving bothers her more. So after all sort of started to point to more of a, it was behaving more like a tendinopathy. So then we did dynamometer testing for hip abduction. Any other questions before I tell you what that looked like? I wanted to ask, and if this is going to be answered from what you're about to get into, then go ahead. But were you able to provoke her hip symptoms, not just from palpation, but from some type of loading? Yes. So in the actual, like on the table going through you know, scour and some of the other screening tests for the hip, passive range of motion, those are all pretty good. At her end range, like full hip flexion and like the very end range of hip abduction, it was a little bit uncomfortable in that particular lateral hip area, not so much the butt and ischial area. area. And then as far as the loading, do you mean like what even when we were doing like the jumping and stuff like that? Yeah, loading, single, uh, uh, this will come later, but a single leg step down or like the strength testing, just some type of a concordant sign. Yeah. So yeah, I'll actually go through both the, uh, quote unquote functional movements we tried and, uh, and the strength. So before we grabbed the dynamometer and did that, I did that towards the end, but after the jumping, I just looked at, cause she was familiar with squat and hinge movements. I always ask people that first, and she did fine with body weight squat. She said a little bit towards her end range. She could kind of 
quote unquote feel it. It wasn't the, I guess, uh, concordant sign that one would be looking for. It's also interesting. Quick side note. I do think that sometimes when we're in that clinical setting that when we're going through the exam, people are kind of quote unquote looking for (laughs) it. Um, so sometimes I feel like there might be a, I usually will dig a little bit with people and say, okay, by it, is it like a little uncomfortable, a little tight, or is that very similar to what you're used to feeling after you run in this case? Um, and they can usually tell you like, oh yeah, no, it doesn't really feel like that. Or yeah, it's, it's similar. Or sometimes like, yeah, that's definitely it. Unfortunately, we rarely get the, oh yeah, that's definitely it. Unless it's pretty acute. But anyway, that's where my train of thought was with, with the squat movement didn't seem to necessarily bug it too much. Um, double leg hinge movement. We just did with a light kettlebell. She was familiar with that. She did keep fairly high hips, almost like more like a stiff legged deadlift and did say that that she felt a little bit in that butt area. Again, how much of that is just like really end range, a little compression, little tension on the actual hamstring that may or may not be a little bit cranky, I guess I would call it. And again, other little side note is sometimes people have more than one thing going on. So maybe that was also just a little irritated. A single leg stance hold was fine. The single leg deadlift was a little bit tight, she said. She said that provoked a little bit of her tightness feeling that she was feeling on the lateral hip, but that it wasn't necessarily the pain. Um, and again, I told her I wouldn't necessarily expect like a very slow controlled single leg deadlift aside from a long trail run to really provoke pain. But if it felt similar in any way, shape or form to let me know. So yes, when that right side was the stance leg and a single leg deadlift, that was a little bit reminiscent of her, the tightness that she would feel sometimes after running. Just as another note that I probably didn't mention before, she's very tall for a female. I think she's probably 5'10". 5'11", and wasn't necessarily under or overweight, just, you know, very, very healthy young female. So she does have long levers. That was one thing. So for her to have a a high hip or stiff-legged deadlift preferred, um, I would think that if that's how she's always done deadlifts, that, yeah, maybe maybe the high hammies take a little bit more of that load than someone who might have a little bit of a different position or a more bent knee, lower hip position starting or ending in the deadlift. We did do a eccentric step down or a lateral heel tap, whatever one wants to call it. That did also provoke a little bit of the tightness and a report of it being much harder on her right side. So again, not necessarily pain, but this isn't really a super acute case. It's been lingering, but not ha- has never really been super high pain. She's really in, in the office at this point because it's naggy and she can't get rid of it. <laughs> So, so the two things active movement wise that she felt the tightness and difficulty with were single leg deadlift and eccentric step down on that side, which again, from a lateral hip strength and control perspective would make sense. Then we hopped back on the table and did, um, hip abduction strength testing. Um, obviously that's not. A, it's not a perfect world to to test that way, but it is as long as you're doing it the same each time, you can get some baseline. Day one, which the we tested April 21st, um, hip abduction on her left was 8.25 pounds, and on her right was 6.75. Not sure if there's norms, but I can tell you that she even when we put her in the position of like long leg abduction with some hip extension, like kind of behind, it was hard for her to even hold it there for very long. Again, she has long legs, but that was day one. We can circle back to what it was a month later in a little bit, but that I believe, except for the numbers having to recall, I think that was pretty much everything we did objectively. Did the sideline abduction strength testing provoke her symptoms at all? Do you do you recall? Mildly, yes. Okay. So she is not, at the time of that initial consult, she had not had to stop trail running or decrease her trail running because of the hip? 
Correct. She admittedly said she probably should. <laughs> um, more of why she was in was she couldn't seem to kick it on her own and also was looking for guidance on how to modify or regress, was also looking for someone who wouldn't tell her to stop running. Okay. Well, so I'll ask about workload. Um, Cause I do find this to be one of those things where it's like a canned response. Well, you did too much. Well, do less or find this. It, it, it becomes this like almost meaningless thing than when like workload, you know, but to dig into that a little bit, did, was there a pattern of, this is going to sound like a stupid question, but doing more provokes more symptoms and doing a little bit less trail running and things feel better overall? Or was she in a scenario where once the trigger was flipped, it didn't actually matter? It, it was sore with short runs, short with long runs, sore when she ran less and more, and there wasn't a discernible pattern. Yeah, no, that's actually not a stupid question, Quinn. She did, she did mention that when it was really bothering her, she would chill a little bit on running and mostly bike, but she didn't love biking. And she did say that biking didn't seem to bother it. So she had gone through maybe two or three cycles of not running much, diverting to biking and walking with her dog, it would get better. And then she would ramp back up and it would come back. So this was like second or third round of that happening. Got it. Okay. But she is cool with the idea of potentially modifying workload, but just wants some direction and guidance on how to do that specifically without it being an all or nothing strategy. Correct. And one other piece to this puzzle is she is currently working with a running coach and occasionally, cause that running coach has a PT partner. They're both cash based. She had recently changed areas for work. So she had been able to see them occasionally either after work cause she was closer to where they were. But now since she's not doing that, she's staying closer where she actually lives, which would require a much longer drive to see the PT. So the run coach, she's still able to do most things with virtually. She hasn't seen the PT much, and a lot of what they were doing was manual-based. So she was also just looking for a slightly... Like, she has a good relationship with the PT. She was just looking for specifically also again which is like probably our dream request for most people is to get back into strengthening and wanted some guidance there cool hey guys quinn hennick here here's your brain break from this awesome conversation with steph remember if you're brand new to calu and, and just want to get involved in all the things that we do join the free calu community facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities that's calu c-a-l-u or calu for those of you who prefer that, on Facebook, or you can just hit that link in the show notes. Also, if you're one of our six listeners who enjoys this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. And now, back to the show. So maybe that's a nice segue to going into what the initial plan was looking like. Yes, so I asked her... First, if she wouldn't mind if I spoke to, definitely wanted to talk to the running coach because I think that our our first things, both from the day-to-day activity modification stuff, as well as the programming and volume and intensity type things, definitely needed to be like first tier. We could definitely begin the strengthening process as tolerated, but I felt like because she was coming to me fairly recently off of a flare that we should continue to kind of get it quote unquote calmed down a little bit. People also like when that happens fairly quickly because then it gives them a little bit of faith in the process too. So we talked about different um, strategies work-wise because her job is mostly either sitting or standing right now. Um, We talked about 
things that wouldn't necessarily feel good either for that butt bone or lateral hip. So things like if she is at her standing desk, because she has that too, to not necessarily stand on one side or over to one to one hip and either either rock back and forth or you know stat we we went through a couple things there as well as you know limiting sitting to maybe 20 to 30 minutes if she can she thought that it would be agreeable and easy to maybe set some timers on her phone as far as just not sitting and and we explicitly talked about how there isn't necessarily a certain way she should sit but just to change position um i said even if that's slouching just change from maybe being fully upright right on those sitting bones. She also did mention when I asked if crossing her legs bothered her that it didn't feel great after a while. So we talked about maybe not doing that, even though sometimes it's habit. And then we really dug mostly into probably what I was, I told her I was going to talk to her run coach about too. And starting to, in the beginning, pull back a little bit on the amount of running. But again, if she knows that biking feels okay, and she's very concerned about this race that she has at the end of July, that there's definitely ways to keep cardio up, and that my first thought is not necessarily stop running, which of course all runners like to hear, and she wasn't like super, super acute where I would have thought like, okay, let's take a week or two off from the running. We we decided to entertain the idea of shorter at first and less frequent working towards shorter, more frequent. And by shorter, I also mean we did intervals, meaning like two or three minutes on, a minute walk, two or three minutes on, a minute walk. So she did actually in the beginning transition a little bit. I didn't want her to completely change over to flat road running because she doesn't normally do that. So I didn't necessarily want to change that completely either but to trial and keep track better of the minutes on minutes off. She said she wanted to try that first. Um, so she was great with that. And the, her coach was awesome as well. She is still doing some interval work. It's still mostly trail running. And in the first, I would say two to three weeks, she didn't actually see a ton of relief. And this was one of the things that I wanted to make sure I shared with people because it can sometimes be a little bit discouraging both for you and the patient. But again, if it is a true tendinopathy, um, sometimes that shit can take time. (laughs) So, um, we did talk about that a little bit and she did divulge that there were a couple of times a little early on that she went for 30 minutes straight. And just because she was feeling good, right? Because that's what happens. You start to relatively deload and divert some of what you're doing and it feels better. So um, she did concede that and realize that that was probably a little bit early to do that. I think the other piece that we focused on more so in the clinic was um, onboarding her with barbell movements that she really wanted to be able to do. And... That also over the course of, you know, doing one to two days of that on her own and then once a week with me doing that, um, that also takes a little bit of time. We also did a ton of single leg and lateral hip stuff as well because she did report feeling better after doing that. So I know that was a lot, but in general, my first my first sort of like question I think I'll throw at you, Quinn, is like when you do a pretty thorough assessment with someone. You come up with a really good game plan and they are to the best of your knowledge, executing it as you guys discussed. And, you know, maybe for the first month or so, they're not changing that much. And they, they express like worry to you. They're not any worse, but with something that you are fairly confident is a a tendon that's not happy. How do you kind of, how do you navigate that with somebody who wants to like be, and in this case has, has an event they're signed up for. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I can obviously like, um, provide some ways that I, that, that, you know, that's navigated because it happens all the time to me. And in fact, the next time we do this show, I'll talk about a very similar, uh, I'll talk about a similar situation, but you know, you don't know how somebody's going to respond in that initial stage until that initial stage has come and gone. And you can hope that 
what you did was you ticked off a lot of boxes. You say, okay, what like short term daily positional modifications can we make? Let's tick that box off. And I love the fact that you mentioned that because I feel like sometimes because we we uh, are critical of the you know posture, all or nothing posture, and like you know the, those that espouse a perfect posture, and people are going to get hurt if they're in bad postures. Those types of things because we're critical of those narratives, then that sometimes is assume that we don't cue posture or we don't cue positions or modify these things, at least on the short term. So I'm glad you brought that up. We shouldn't feel dirty about doing those things. It's, it's short term strategies to decrease just overall load on the area that's sensitized. So, so you tick that box off, you ticked off the just general training load of her trail running, talked to her coach, split it up, reduced it, and then just kind of divvied it to try to keep her under that endurance tolerance threshold that you know that you guys were finding um even though that she surpassed that a couple times which who knows how much that contributed to that initial stage of of kind of staying you know still and then you started to introduce some strength training the idea maybe one thought is that you're now introducing you're taking some load away but introducing a different type but it's still kind of more so you take some you give some so there may be that kind of stalemate time period where it's almost like just acclimation to this new routine just in general for the person. And success might be like with all of this change that we're trying to implement, all of these behavioral changes and different ways of, of loading and establishing this new kind of baseline, you didn't get any worse. And that in itself is a, is a victory because now we've established this starting point we have this foundation that we can build from both from the strength training perspective and the training load perspective. So in that sense, it can be a positive. It can be kind of a victory. Like this, this first month was almost just getting our ducks in a row and getting oriented to, to each other. Um, and so I'm just kind of like brainstorming how I would, I would possibly kind of have the conversation. And that's one way that, that we might frame it is is not getting any worse holding the line with all of these changes was is a success in its own right yeah i think the uh, i i love that i think one of the ways that sometimes i'll go about saying that too in the beginning almost as part of the setting expectations if i know if i'm fairly confident that we're we're working with the tendinopathy and because i know in the back of my mind that sometimes it can just take a really long time I dealt with a hamstring tendinopathy for over a year. So, but that's also not necessarily something that you want to tell somebody day one. But I think that if you set them up for that first, maybe six weeks of, there might not be anything drastic, but if you can tolerate more of what we're adding on while still simultaneously tolerating some of that other sport specific regressed movements and not be worse even if you're insane, like that's, you know, it, it, and it will, I'll often say like, it will take a little trial and error on both of our parts. So yeah, that's a good, like, like framing it almost as like orienting to the situation and the loading. Yeah. And just what you said, like sometimes the symptoms, the actual thing that you're experiencing, you know, people don't come into the office and saying, you know what, I've got it. I sense that I have some, some tendinopathic changes and I've lost <laughs> stiffness in my tendon. No, it hurts. And that's why they come in. We all, you know, image our tendons and, and we probably have some tendinopathic changes. So they're coming in because they're perceiving the, the symptoms have become unmanageable or they're, they want guidance in that respect. So, but, but then the flip side of that is sometimes that is that feeling, that experience is like the last, the last thing to start to dissipate. But if we can, if we can accumulate more stuff that's meaningful for you and that experience gets no worse from if from my perspective as a therapist that's a victory and then i but i say that kind of explicitly i say from my perspective that's a win but i want to know how you feel about that would you consider that an initial win an initial victory for this next 4 to 6 weeks if that were the case you get no worse but we're actually able to do a little bit more um, and many times, you know, they say, oh yeah, that would be great. I just want to plan, you know, sometimes, you know, some, if not, if they're not cool with that, then you have that conversation, but just like how you spun it and, uh, how long have, was she experiencing the symptoms 
I know she was trail running since before COVID, but how long was she actually experiencing the symptoms? Yeah, so she came early April, April or mid-April, okay. um, and she had been feeling it on and off a little bit since around the beginning of the year, like January, February. But then again, like I said, she went through those couple of cycles of trying to modify on her own, and then when ramping back up, it would come back. Okay, so 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 we're looking at several months then. Yeah. So that's kind of another piece, you know, from the beginning, if you can say, listen, this has been going on for several months. So I'm not going to say it's going to mirror that and take that exact time to, you know, to get over some type of hump, but you know, it's not going to be an overnight thing. So sometimes you initially, everybody's like, Oh yeah, yeah, I get that. But that's one of those things you kind of have to re-inject. Yeah. You you definitely have to, in a friendly way, remind that we've had that conversation. But yeah, so now she and we, I was slowly able to, I mean, I didn't reduce her anxiety around it (laughs) as she was coming in, as she was having some quote unquote wins with, you know, lifting a little bit more. And she started doing some barbell work on her own at the gym and then would come back and say like, Hey, I was able to get to this and it didn't bother me after. Um, So those accumulated over the course of a few weeks. And then we tested again on May 12th, so a little under a month later, and both sides were just about equal, and they were 10.75 pounds. So again, we went from 8.25 on the left and 6.75 with a little bit of pain um, on the right. So that day, she was very happy. (laughs) Um, And that definitely bought us, I I think it created a little bit more buy-in for the continued even though it was increasing at this point, some continued interval work with the trail running because she was now able to take a little bit away from the biking and add a little bit to the running. It was just still a little bit lower um, intensity and duration than she had been used to. Um, and her her run coach is doing all of that, and I'm kind of just kept abreast with everything. And it's been really, it's been really good for her. That's awesome. So is that the scenario now? So now this is, you know, again, another, so other little piece is, um, her insurance only approves a certain number of visits. Uh, this is part of a lot of stories, unfortunately. So we've decreased frequency to every other week, which is fine because she's doing really well on her own. She's currently in a spot. I just saw her this past week and she's currently in a spot where she's not asymptomatic but her words were that it rarely bothers me during, I might feel it a little bit after and it doesn't last as long and also isn't as painful. So it's still there. And we, you know, that was helpful for me. That report was helpful for me in that it allowed me to have the conversation with her of, okay, your race is in, you know, a little over a month and, are you okay with potentially not necessarily being asymptomatic, but having faith in the fact that between me and your run coach, we've ramped you up enough, even if it's not all via running, it was via some biking, but also with strength training that, yeah, you might be a little sore during and after, but that you should feel confident in being able to recover after that race. And then again, refocus on kind of continuing the rehab side of things until your, until your next race. And she felt by that time. But again, that took two months. I didn't have that conversation right away. That's so good. Uh, and, and whether you have it right away, that when you were going through those conversations, it was sparking me what, what, had what we talked about a few minutes ago in, in regards to how you navigate those tricky, just ups and downs with these diagnoses that, that don't have this linear, predictable timeline, especially when they have a competition. Cause I have a lot of athletes that or in similar boats with, with uh, a lot of times it's a weightlifting meet or something, but it's like, yeah, I'm here and I have a meet in however long, six weeks, eight weeks. It's like, okay. I, I think that conversation is important to have at some point sooner than later, maybe even is that there's going to be some give and take here. It is not ideal to want to maximize the, the benefits of a reconditioning program at the same time that you also want to be in peak condition for, high performance. Those, those things are competing for each other's time and resources. 
and so it's it's almost kind of like, well, let's let's pick our poison a little bit here. And would you be okay with if we're I want to hedge our bets towards the meat or the race? Like what you just mentioned, success being not that this thing is completely gone, but that if we can get it to the point where one of three things are happening, it's these little flare ups or tightening instances don't happen as frequently when and if they do happen, they're not as intense as they typically were and or they go away faster. You're able to bounce back sooner and that's exactly what, what uh, she had described to you in, in the conversation that you all had. And I think that's a good way to, to try to come to a mutual uh, you know, compromise somewhere in the middle where it's, they have this idea in their head where, okay, I'm going to probably have to be managing this thing throughout this process, but we, we can still aim for some improvement while trying to boost performance. So I thought that was really great. Yeah. And the one other thing that I did say to her that I, I feel like there's some parallels here to things like nonspecific low back pain or things that are some of the presentations that have prognoses of that they tend to recur. So things like an Achilles tendinopathy or rotator cuff issues those kind of things, they tend to, they're not the only things, obviously, but they're some of the things that commonly we see along with back pain that just, their natural history is sometimes that with unexpected spikes or, you know, doing too much without necessarily being relatively recently prepared, you you are likely predisposed to a quote-unquote flare. Um, and again, you mentioned a little bit of like tendinopathic changes. That's in the back of our mind. So with symptoms, they may very well have some changes if you like histological changes or things that like if we were to do diagnostic ultrasound, that tendon may look a little different than the other side or different than a, than somebody else's. Um, but the hard part with those things are that, you know, especially they find with Achilles tendons and runners is like, they have some of those same changes that used to be thought of as degeneration. And those are more so an adaptation. And they don't have symptoms. So again, it's it's both sides. But all of that was really to say that I also did have a conversation with her that, you know, this, I was like, if you get, even if you're not like completely asymptomatic when you leave here, if you are confident in being able to manage the fluctuations potentially of this as you're also running like 50K races and just having a really good time and you know, like, a, B, C, and D things to do before reaching out to me or somebody else the next time this potentially happens, like, that's great because it might, like, it might happen. And I would be flat out lying to you if I told you you're never going to have anything like this ever again if you're going to continue to 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 run and do this sport. And I, that's not to discourage you. It's, like, to tell you to keep going for it. We all have We all have a thing, right? If you've been in athletics long enough, you kind of have, like, some people it's their elbows. Well, personally, my elbows happen to feel fine for me. It's my knees. Like, and, and for this woman, it may be this hip that, that comes and goes every now and then, like you said, every couple times a year, two or three times a year or whatever, she gets a little flare. Um, but it's like you said, now there's a much different kind of mindset around it. And uh, I think that's really important because it's also posi- it's also possible that this just reaches some critical mass and then she the last time she feels it is the last time she feels it and she never feels it again for the rest of her life. That's also possible. Uh, but gosh, uh, you know, if we could predict who and who's going to be that person and who's going to be the recurring, we'd either be uh, we'd be out of a job or we'd have different jobs or so I. I I think that this process that you described is is so real and uh, so, kind of like a microcosm of a, of a lot of the ways that this goes. But when you pull back, the trajectory is positive. You know, you have, if you zoom in on the day-to-day, it's this crazy erratic kind of up and down, up and down. But then if you zoom out, you can see workloads going up, new activities are being introduced that are meaningful to her. And then her, her real meaningful activity is also, you know, steadily inclining too. So 
Awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, or is it, it's fun, but it also, again, I think one of some of the handful of these cases that I have been thinking about to, to start out these clinical files with are particularly ones that have been challenging for me. And with her, it was more, I think it was more of the conversational side of things that was tough because she had a lot of questions and she was anxious about things and you know, all of the exercise prescription stuff and like regressing things like the single leg deadlift and side plank and the step downs and all those sort of things. Like we did stuff as simple as like cable hip abduction to really load. You know what I mean? Like it's not that it wasn't, um, there was definitely a method to the madness with, uh, the exercise side of things, but this one definitely highlighted a, a case where, having to navigate uncertainty with the person, but also show them that you're confident. Um, and then we talk about that a lot in general in the Cali community. And, um, it really is when I step back at, and look at my whole caseload, like it's not uncommon that it's sprinkled in there a decent amount. I wonder what the actual percentage is, but I also had no idea when I was in school. <laughs> that, um, that would more so be the norm than uh, the case studies you get during your practicals. So, but it is manageable. It's super challenging because you might write that initial exercise program with these these exercises that are simple, basic, but they get the job done. They all have, and you're like, cool, minimal viable program, feeling good about this. And the reality is, you could run that. Honestly, you could probably run that program from just a like getting the benefit of the exercises for many, 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 many weeks, exactly how it's written. But then there's this human on the other side of this thing that doesn't necessarily know that adaptations take time, doesn't necessarily know the difference between a muscle and a tendon and why the heck they're doing this cable, you know, abduction exercise. And, and, and it's week three and I'm doing the exact same exercises. We haven't progressed anything, you know? So there's all, there's all these questions that as the provider, you kind of assume they're on board with sometimes. And, and then it hits this point where it's like, okay, I'm getting the, you know, the, the patient is getting antsy or they're having this all of a sudden that we're having this conversation now. And sometimes I feel like a, like a, a broken record where, you know, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. Like I'm using that as almost like a cop out. And I don't want to give timelines, even to say like 12, even to say for someone with tendinopathy, you need to expect at least 12 weeks of work. In my mind as a clinician, I'm saying at least like, don't even have an, don't even have a feeling until 12 weeks go by. And then we can, you know, then we can talk. But from their perspective, all they heard was 12 weeks. They said, ah, oh, 12 weeks. Cool. I can do anything for 12 weeks. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. 12 weeks is basically when we press start. It's like when you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's what you're navigating, not to mention insurance limitations, all of those other things, you know, that just make this the reality of, of clinical practice. But it's awesome that the, her coach was part of the circle. She's got professionals mm -hmm. working in her, you know, in her favor who are working together, they they're not pulling her in different directions. That's so powerful. You're there as kind of a liaison and a, kind of an expert, you know, content, you know, a subject expert in, in the rehab, but she still has her coach who she probably really, you know, trusts and has a great relationship with too. Yeah. She had worked with that coach, I think for at least a year. Um, mm. So I was, I was the new kid on the block. <laughs> And and so you tread lightly. You don't come in there with you know right. a, a pitchfork and and any other thoughts or questions to throw out from your side. No, I think I mostly just with this particular one wanted people to think about. I think the I'm trying to think the best way to put this. So, is there anybody? On, I'll put it this way: Is there anybody on your caseload? or whether you're on clinical or it's even just hypothetical case studies, if you're in school um, or clinicians yourselves, that 
you think could potentially benefit from taking a step back, simplifying a little bit, and really having that conversation about time and that what we were talking about as far as we're able to add A, B, C, and D and symptoms aren't changing, you know, that is technically progress. That's part of the rehab's definition of progress because whether it's tendinopathic lateral hip pain or not, maybe it's just an ankle sprain and the person is young, but it's taking a little bit longer than they want. You know, where in your caseload do you feel like having a similar conversation could open the door for them to view this whole process as progress instead of the day-to-day or week-to-week up and down that Quinn was mentioning before, because again, it's not a blanket prescription or blanket conversation that has to happen with everyone. But I think when you take a step back, there's probably some people that, you know, if they're on the more than four to six week track of rehab and it doesn't have to be all in clinic, but their journey is probably more than four to six weeks, they could potentially benefit from having that expectations talk in a motivating way. And, and potentially the shifting them away from the idea that there's some type of demarcation line that they're going to step over and, oh, this is just going to be gone or, you know, we'll be pat, it'll be done. Managed discharge means, you know, right. and then they're back to tip top shape or, or you just never know, you know, how people view the, the process until you, until you have those conversations. Well, I guess the other half is then that's a good point. I'll say this last thing and then I'll shut up. Um, maybe ask them a little earlier on than you would think, what do you expect? And maybe not flat out like that, but nudge as far as what their expectations are, because you might save yourself and them a lot of grief or, you know, dips in self-efficacy or sadness even sometimes, depending on how much they identify with their activity. If you kind of have that conversation like you said, Quinn, earlier rather than later. And as difficult as they are, it's much more difficult to have them later when there's some kind of frustration or, or anything negative that's kind of been built up, antsiness or whatever you want to call it. You know, as you go, we've all felt that, you know, even personally been frustrated with whatever the, the thing is as time goes by having those conversations early doesn't prevent those negative, those setbacks, those negative uh, periods of time from happening, but, but they allow you to dip back into that to say, you know, remember what we talked about on day one, well, you know, here we are. And you can kind of, you can use that as kind of a foundation to have another conversation about it, but you've never had that conversation in the first place trying to then establish expectations when you're deeper into the process is just more difficult. Yeah. Then it's a scramble. (laughs) It's a scramble. Sweet. Awesome. If you guys have any questions, holler at us. Yeah. Like we got to figure out a way people post up in the Calu Facebook group or something. And in the comments when we post the shows or, or wherever. Yeah. Cause there's never, I mean, we would be on here for, two hours if we were to go through like, um, everything. Yeah. And also I'm sure there's some cases that will lend themselves a little better. Like the last one I talked about, that one was a little bit more, you know, specific into the EXRX. Um, you know, but if there's, if there's pieces of, you know, a case like this where you guys have some more specifics on kind of what we did week to week, um, you know, that's kind of where we can have some overflow into the, into the Facebook group too. Sweet. Yay. We survived the technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> People probably don't want to even know the difference. They're like, what are they talking about? That's all right. Um, it's, re- it's real life people. Real. Exactly. Real life, <laughs> clinical life, podcast life, not, not without trials and tribulations, but we here, we yes. doing it. Yes. Um, Steph, that was great. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.
We hope you enjoyed this episode with Steph. If you're not following Steph on social media, you should. That info is in the show notes. One more time, if you're into brain gains, join the free Calo Community Facebook group for great discussions, resources, and lots of learning and networking opportunities. And if you're ready to jump with both feet into our famed Calu Plus community and take our foundations courses, then fill out the application that we have in the show notes and we'll talk. Otherwise, thank you so much, Clinical community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. We'll talk to you soon.